Hello and welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm the Digital Engagement Director, Chloe Roges. We're so excited you're joining us for week 13 of Masterclass, the Gospel of Mark, as we learn about the coming of the Kingdom of God. Jesus came to us with the future in mind. He always knew the purpose of his earthly ministry, and he knew the ultimate victory would be won on the cross. But what will happen afterward? Will Jesus come back, and when? What will happen in those days? Scripture holds the answers, and now let's search for them together. Well, one of the things you may or may not know about me is that I am from the great state of Arkansas. So I'm a a proud native Arkansan, uh, central Arkansas specifically, and I grew up around Little Rock, there where the state capitol building is, and and I loved it. Part of my growing up was visiting Little Rock all the time, going and seeing the state capitol building. Actually, in high school, I worked just around the block, and I loved to visit it all of the time. There were lawmakers there. Politics was happening. I could go and see the functions of government. It was so much fun. But, but the state capitol building there in Arkansas, you, you may not know, is that uh, it's known for its monumental design. And I say monumental because it, it looks very similar to the capitol building in Washington, D.C. It's much smaller, of course, but it's sort of like a replica. I mean, it has the dome and the windows, the columns that surround it, the two wings that span the length of the building. And, and it was a point of pride for our home state because it was used a lot in, in TVs and movies. It was really cool. Like, they could not film um, anything in, in Washington, D.C. at the state capitol, or the nation's capitol building, of course. So they would use the Arkansas State Capitol Building, as sort of a replica. And, and it was such a neat, fun fact about my state's history, except some of these movies, or most of these movies, were uh, you know, spy or political espionage, anything like that, and that was entertaining. But most of the time, the plot of the movie had something to do with the bad guys rigging the state capitol with explosives, that being the nation's capital, and sometimes the bad guys won. And so at the end of the movie, you see the capital just being raised to the ground, absolutely destroyed. And that's like really discouraging because that's, you know, that's my capital building right there, right? It's, it's really, really discouraging. But um, think about this. What if that wasn't a movie, right? What if that wasn't TV? What if that actually happened? Like, what if the U.S. Capitol was just destroyed? Now, for us, that represents a lot of different things. Like, there in Washington, D.C., it represents freedom for all, religious liberty, justice for the helpless and the innocents. And to see that building destroyed, for us to witness that, would be something akin to um, seeing something of our freedom taken away. We feel like we have lost something. Like, there's something that happens that splits that day in history. Like, August 24th, 1814, British forces invade Washington, D.C. They raise Washington, D.C. to the ground. The Capitol building is destroyed. White House is destroyed. It's the only time in our nation's history that our capital has been invaded by a, a foreign uh, country. Or September 11, 2001. Most, if not all of us in this room, have been affected in some way by that day in history. And in fact, when we, we can go back even 21 years later, we see pictures and videos, and it still leaves us speechless. Well, friends, we, we come to Mark 13, and, and what Jesus is about to begin in this discourse, he begins with pronouncing the destruction of the temple. And I bring up all of these things because I think it's an appropriate jumping off point into this text, into this chapter, 
and it, and it kind of couches our conversation well because it is, it is something that in the minds of the reader, in the minds of who he's speaking to, it's unthinkable. It's traumatic. It's totally unexpected. And yet what Jesus is saying here should inspire hope and vigilance and watchfulness. And, and we'll dive into what that means. But if you would, join me in prayer for a moment. Father God, we're so thankful for the opportunity we've already had to, to worship you. We know your Holy Spirit is here. I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds, God, and that we'd step in boldness and clarity to see what it is that your word is speaking to us this morning, and that we, we would um, take that, that next step and what it means to follow after you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark 13, or if you have the Rolling Hills app, you can pull that up. It will also be here on the screen, but we're going to begin today's reading, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. So as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. And so Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. Now, the temple in Jewish culture was a symbol of God's presence. It was the place of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant being God's law to his people. And so it housed that, and it, 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 was, it was an important symbol in their culture. This temple was constructed about 20 years before Jesus was born by Herod the Great. He, be, he began this construction in the middle of Jerusalem, and it was massive. It was about 20 acres in the center of Jerusalem. If you're familiar with Bridgestone Arena, downtown Nashville, it's, it's roughly approximately about 17 acres. So imagine that and a little bit more. I mean, that should kind of give us an idea, a picture of what it looked like. And, and it was beautiful. It was known for its adornment of the sanctuary. It had a complex of courts, porches, balconies, the buildings there. These white stones they're talking about, the largest of them were 45 feet long, 15 feet thick, 10 feet tall. Give you an idea, this room is about 32 by 30 feet. So imagine that, about half the size of that would be some of these large stones, and they were decorated with gold. And it, as I said, it was a dazzling beauty. It was meant to be a symbol of holiness, that God was with his people. This is a symbol of God's people's love for him and for others. But at this time when Jesus is speaking, it came with certain conditions. See, the, the, the temple courts, it had the nine gates that you would come into, and then you came with the outer courts. That was the court of the Gentiles. And so those are the people that weren't a part of God's people. And then inside that, you had the inner courts. And right outside there was a brick, and it had an inscription saying, Let no foreigner enter within the balustrade and enclosure surrounding the holy place. Whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself because death follows. This is a serious matter for Gentiles to stay out of the inner court. And then within that, you had the court of women. So no women were, were allowed beyond that point. And then you had the court of Israel, where the men of Israel were. And then the court of priests. And within the court of priests was the sanctuary, this prominent location that anybody could see from any part of the temple, from any part of the city. It was there at the very middle, and it was topped with gold plates, gold spikes, the giant doors encrusted with all sorts of precious metals. And within that, you had the holy place, and you had a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or, or, or the holy of holies. And it, and it was said there, is where, that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, that it was right there where God's law was given to his people and he kept it there and the high priest would go one day out of the year into this Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And so, 
Jesus prophesizes that this entire structure is going to be absolutely dismantled, raised to the ground. And if we can skip forward for a moment, this prophecy that he pronounces, the destruction of the temple, will come to pass. In 70 AD, Roman soldiers invade Jerusalem, they siege the city, and one of the, one of the first things they do is they completely destroy this temple. The Roman general Titus, he invades these great stones they were, that were encrusted with all sorts of gold. They were pried apart to get the molten gold, and, and they were crushed dump on top of each other. There's no longer any sacrifices. The the great diaspora people scatter Jerusalem to escape from from the Roman soldiers. And in fact, when Roman soldiers walk in, they walk into the Holy of Holies, the place where the the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be held, and it's empty. See, the tabernacle was destroyed in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. The symbol of God's presence is empty. So let's go back, go back to the text and what Jesus is saying here. Why would Jesus begin with the destruction of the temple? What is he actually saying here? Well, if you're following along in your sermon notes, you'll see this is that God's kingdom comes to dwell with every individual. God's kingdom comes to dwell with every individual. You see, Jesus is not predicting the destruction of the temple because he, cre- he hates great architecture. Like, he's not that guy that you travel with, you know, you go, on, you go on a vacation with, and he absolutely hates everything. You're like, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, I wish it wasn't there. Like, that's not what he's doing. All right? He doesn't desire the temple to be destroyed because he hates it, but he's saying that those who follow after Jesus will be indwelled with the one thing that Herod's temple never had, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Every believer is now in dwell with the Holy Spirit. And that, that temple imagery that Paul uses there is intentional. He knows what he's saying there. To keep us pure, that we are in dwell with God's Spirit. The place that was to represent God's presence, that temple there, there, had become segregated. It had become cut off from others. It was used to ostracize others. It, it, it was threatening death. See, holiness was meant to be a place of holiness became a place of self-righteousness. And, and I think this is a temptation that the Jews felt is that they could put God's presence in the box, that they could push others out. They could do whatever they want as long as they honor God on a certain day of the week. I'm happy to say that that doesn't happen anymore, Right? No, friends, God is not limited to the 8 o'clock, the 9.30, or the 11. The church is not just a building. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to hear this this morning, that God's spirit dwells within you, that you can commune with God when you meet him in his word, when you meet him in prayer, when you meet him in community. Communion with God is focus on God. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus then know that there is a place for you, that there is God's grace and his presence there for the taking, that it will come for every individual. It is there for you. Maybe you claim to follow Jesus, but you don't really. You're in some sort of unrighteous living. You're dishonoring God with your words, your actions, your deeds. Friends, if you are a follower of Christ, your body is a temple. You are to honor him with that. Or maybe you walked in this morning burdened or heavy-hearted, or afflicted, and you need to be reminded that God is present in your suffering, that 
in our suffering, that's when the Holy Spirit is closest. That Jesus is our high priest who is perfected through suffering. You see, our bodies are a temple, and God's presence is with us. Now, the disciples, something that, that, that really throws them for a loop is that they thought the temple would stand until the end of the world. So destruction of the temple would mean the end of the world. And so Jesus' prophecy is so stunning, the disciples want to know more. Follow along with me in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So, so imagine this. These guys, uh, if you've been following along our master class series, it's been a, sim- a, a series of questions that they don't quite understand what Jesus is saying here. So these guys have been following Jesus, and, and you know that they're, they're struggling to grasp with this, and, and basically they're saying, hey Jesus, you know that part where you said that the temple would be destroyed, there'd be no semblance of it ever actually existing? Yeah, what did you mean by that? Like, that's pretty cryptic. It's pretty weird. And so They're struggling to understand it, and we struggle to understand what's about to happen the rest of this chapter. We we come to this, and it's kind of difficult for us to understand. That's for two reasons. One, what Jesus is about to speak here is a lot of Old Testament imagery, a lot of Old Testament prophecy. And two, what we're about to do is interpret it in our modern interpretation. And so we would do well to take note of that. And so we can't have every question that comes out of this text, but we can certainly, we love to speculate so we're going to be careful with this passage. We're not going to get carried away for the next 20 minutes or so. What, 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 uh, common question, what we're going to be walking through multiple times this morning is um, looking at this text and saying, what do we know to be true? What do we know for sure? Well, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus, as I said earlier, he's, he's affirming Old Testament prophecy. We know that there will be deceivers, liars, imposters, false teachers, fake messiahs. There'll be those who love to speculate, love to distract others, who want to make uh, fame and money for their predictions. I mean, if you look on YouTube, biblical prophecy is its own genre. It's a booming industry. And and Paul warns warns us of this in 1 Timothy 4. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things caught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as with a hot iron. Is this really hard to believe? Like, this is happening right now. They're turning others away, gaining a cult following. And Jesus is saying here to keep watch. Why does he say that? Because he knows our hearts. He knows how we're tempted. He knows how we're prone to wander from the truth, to seek out the gospel from somewhere else, to make God's word hip or cool or sexy or tolerable. So he says, keep watch. What else do we know to be true? Well, we know that from this text, wars, earthquakes, famines will not be the sign of Jesus' second coming. He says, all these things must happen first. Not in the middle of it, but these things must happen first. And, and he says here, the beginning of birth pains, this is used in the Old Testament to symbolize judgment. See, friends, we know that God will one day judge the world. We know that to be true. That's not mere speculation. But here's the temptation for us as readers today. We want to take God's word and make it about us 
and think that everything is about us, this time is about us, when in reality, Jesus' words are about him. And, and, and it brings it out in this text, but we do this every time we sit with God's word, we have to be reminded that this book is about him. It's not just about us. Uh, Mark here is writing the words of encouragement. And at that time when he was writing the gospel, according to Mark, he was writing to a persecuted church in Rome. And yet we want to come to it today and grab our Benjamin Franklin glasses. It's a national treasure reference if you don't know. <laughs> but we, we try to figure out the hidden meaning of like a secret treasure underneath the nation's capital. And all you know is that you need to steal the Declaration of Independence, give me lemon juice and a hairdryer. We sound crazy when we try to do that. No, we, we want to make the scripture about us. Now is the time that it's going to happen. The biggest election is always the next one. This year is my year. We live, we're living at a time unlike any other. 2021, the word of the year was what? Unprecedented, right? But friends, when we try to make scripture about us, we start to drift. And, and we start to make God a lot more like who we want him to look like. A God that we can put in a box. A God that we can hold in our hands. And Jesus is actually saying here, hey, you're going to be tempted to see these things and think that that means that I am here. And, and there's going to be false messiahs who are going to say that I am here because this is happening. But I'm telling you, that's not it. See, he knew that that would be a temptation for us. When we need to be reminded that God is in control and we are not. So we handle this text with a dose of humility, with an attitude of humility. And if, if, if you're reading through this today or, or later on throughout this week and you're confused, I would just say, hey, continue to faithfully di dive into God's word, um, knowing that you don't have to have all of the answers right now, but you cling to what you know for sure to be true. And some of you that are doubting if any of this is true, I urge you to continue to trust in God knowing that he is good and he would never take you to a place that is further from the truth. And, and for those of us who are maybe living in sin, I want to remind you that this passage is very clear about one thing. Jesus will come back and God will judge. So don't delay. Don't think that you can get it all together before, right before he comes back. Like you can predict it and time it and then get all your affairs in order. No, repent now. Continue on with me in verse 9. Jesus says, you must be on your guard. There it is again. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end, will be saved. So there it is again. Jesus says, be on your guard. This is a call to watchfulness. And you see here on your notes that Jesus' concern is to prepare the church for both persecution and mission. Persecution, he's saying, hey, keep watch. Remain faithful to the things that you know to be true, but then also mission. He says, know me. Go and preach God's word. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't overlook verse 10 here. He says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So in the midst of everything that is happening, we're still expected to continue and go and tell the world about Jesus and who will be there with us, that Holy Spirit who is there to 
give us words in times of need. Jesus' concern is to prepare the church for both persecution and mission. So I ask again, okay, so what do we know to be true about this passage? One is don't be surprised by how this world will treat Christians. Because we always are. Something happens, we, and, and we want to cry foul, but are we really to be surprised? No, we're not to be surprised. We also know there will be nowhere to hide. Jesus says, hey, you're going to be beaten in places of worship. You're going to stand trial in courtrooms. You'll be betrayed in your own home. Friends, there will be no room for posers. There will be no place for fakers. There's no time for nominal Christians. Because we also know that the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. See, God will be there. He'll be actively involved. He'll be involved in what you say and what others hear. But those who are faithful will be saved. Don't watch for the end. Watch till the end. Don't be faithful in the end. Be faithful till the end. In verse 13, when he's talking about raising up those who stand firm to the end, that's a call. That's a call for us to raise up fully mature disciples, those who are going to stand firm at the end. So, so where are you raising up disciples? See, we read this passage and we think, that can never happen to me. Like, that can happen in my America. That can happen in my family. That's never going to happen in my lifetime. And what Jesus is saying, this will happen to you if you follow me. And so watch. Keep a close watch. I want to bring it back to the idea of your body as a temple. What are you keeping watch? What are you feeding your body? What are you feeding your mind? Keep it pure. pure. Keep it Feed it things that are edifying, things that point you to Christ. And don't fall asleep. Don't get lazy. In the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus gives this parable that I think illustrates it really well. He says, At the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. See, don't watch for the end. Watch till the end. Don't be faithful in the end. Be faithful till the end. He goes on in in, in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it it does not belong, let the reader understand. He's talking about Daniel there. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And then he says, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. 
And so you might be wondering, what is that abomination of desolation? That sounds like a really cool metal, heavy metal band, but what is that? Abomination of desolation. As a quote from Daniel, it's an Old Testament prophecy, as we said before, but it's the thing most hated. Imagine, it's an idol, someone who is going to come into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and they're going to worship themselves. They're going to make an idol out of themselves, and because of that, it's going to cause destruction and chaos. But back to the, the temple, your body is a temple. What about you? Let's, let's illustrate that for a moment. What are those idols? What is that in your own heart? See, you wouldn't let an idol stand in your own home, right? And yet, what do we watch on TV or the internet? What are the things that we are taking in? What are those idols that we bring in? Parents, you, you wouldn't leave your children alone with idols, what about their cell phones or their iPads? What are the things that they're taking in? See, our goal is to raise up disciples who will stand firm until the end, and we are to watch for idols. So third time I'll ask, what do we know to be true? There will be idols trying to invade every inch of this world. There's nowhere, no place is sacred. And again, there's going to be false messiahs and false prophets performing signs and wonders. But what else do we know to be true? We know that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he is good. He's saying here, he would cut short the days for those whom he lives, he loves. See, Jesus is speaking with both realism and hope. So this, this passage isn't to reveal some end times information, but it's to promote faith and obedience in a time of distress and trouble. Think about the end of this book, the book of Revelation. John, he wasn't, it wasn't written to try to figure out. It was to be a comfort. Like, John didn't write that letter to all the churches and say, hey, I know the apostles are dead, and the emperor is trying to suppress you, and there's many Christians falling away from the faith, and so many false teachers that are distorting the gospel, and you're not even sure what God's doing right now, but uh, here's a fever dream puzzle I have. Good luck, figure it out. That's not what he was saying. That's not how they took it, so why would we take that now? No, realism and hope. You see it here on your notes. We are losing and God wins. See, we are going to lose, and yet God is, is, is going to win. These, these two truths are not mutually exclusive. That in the midst of persecution, the midst of distress, when it looks like everything is falling away, God is there, and he is going to win. Look here in verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's terrifying imagery. But then look, at the time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will, not pa will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So if you read this passage and think you need to check your horoscope, then you missed it. Like, if you read this passage and it strikes horror in your heart, then you missed it. 
What's the point? The point is that Jesus is coming back. It's the great reversal that the cornerstone rejected becomes the foundation that God will build, that the God who knew no pain took on flesh and suffering on our behalf, and that the world will be completely destroyed and something new and better will take its place. Friends, we are losing and God wins. And when we read this passage, we should be reminded of the idols of our life. And what, what do I mean by that? Because when we read this passage... We remember all the things that we'll miss when this day comes. We'll say, well, if Jesus comes back, what's going to happen to that new addition I built on the home? What am I supposed to do about that? Or if Jesus comes back, how am I supposed to finish my degree? Or if Jesus comes back, how am I supposed to climb the corporate ladder? Really wrestle with that passage. If there, check your heart and ask, hey, what will I miss when I get to heaven? Friends, that's an idol. And we do well to recognize that. And, and it, so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this, this all probably sounds crazy. And to a certain extent, it is. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He said, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But the, those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And it should sound crazy because it's unlike any other decision, unlike anything else, any other decision you'll ever make. And if you're struggling with those idols in your life, remember the things that you know to be true. So I am the student ministry director here at Nolensville, so I'm going to speak to the parents in the room for a moment. This is an illustration that applies to all of us, but I would just ask you to consider this, is that maybe you idolize your teenager. So how does that play out? Well, we want to build our plans about speculation or around speculation rather than absolute certainty. So speculation says, what school will my child go to? Is my son really gonna, good enough to make it in the big leagues someday? Like, what can I give up so that my daughter might be happy? That's speculation. Now, what do we know would be true? What do we know with absolute certainty? That your teenager will one day stand before God and have to give an account for what they did or didn't do for the kingdom. How are you building into that absolute certainty? How are you raising up your child in the fear of the Lord? That's not mere speculation. You see this in your notes. We will know Jesus when he returns. We will know when Jesus returns, and we will know Jesus when he returns. Verse 32, but what about, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know what time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So this is a passage we like to leave out. This is one that we like to skim over, right? Because we hate what we don't know. Because... We want to try to figure him out, but the temptation in saying that is when we're trying to figure out God, we're claiming he's not in control. So we try to put God under a microscope, like he's some sort of lab bacteria that we can kind of toy around with or study, when in reality, he is one that we are magnifying with a telescope, that in his infinite beauty and majesty, we, in our best finite capacity, recognize that. We worship that, and we recognize that he's the one that is in control. And do you know that today, or do you just know about that? What are the idols in your temple that's keeping you away from him? As, as we wrap up um, this morning, 
Jesus here is talking about the end times. Mark 13 is filled with all sorts of end times imagery. But I want to point you to another end times passage. Towards the end of this book, Revelation 21 and 22, it it, it paints a very real picture that inspires hope of the new heaven and new earth. It's an extraordinary depiction of the new city of God. It's a new Jerusalem. There's a wedding ceremony, river clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Day and night they will sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Everything made new. Everything restored. There's no pain. Every tear will be wiped away. But you know what isn't there? You know what's missing? The temple. The temple. Why is that? Because Jesus will be there. Jesus will be with his people. That the kingdom will come here. Will you be there with him? Will you be there and be faithful till the end? Is your heart prepared and ready for the mission ahead? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this text. The hope that it inspires, that we know that in the midst of whatever is going on around us, whether in our own life or anywhere across the world, God, it can look like um, we are losing and yet we know that you win, that you will come back and you will reign. Lord, and all things will be made new. I pray that... um, rest of our time together as we continue to worship you, Lord, uh, that you would bless us, that we, not for our own sakes, for our own agenda, but to glorify you in all that we do. And I pray that you bless us throughout the rest of the week, that we would go on to raise up disciples who will stand firm in the end, God, if that's in our household, or if it's at work, wherever it is that we go, Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're glad you spent some time with us today. Have a great week.